0: So um, I want to begin by saying it's an honor to be here. It's wonderful to see what God is doing in Seattle and how he's raising up a community of people who love Jesus and who live for him. And so you are a witness in your community, so it's wonderful. Um, I'm also honored to hear about, um, I mean, touched to hear about Tracy. And it's funny how sometimes people's lives uh, it's after we leave that a legacy develops, and it looks like Tracy is de- has created a legacy that is going to go on and on and touch many lives, even though she's going to be with the Lord. So our lives don't end when we leave this earth. There is still things that we can uh, that we can influence people um, uh, even after we're gone. Well, I am the director of a, a ministry called Middle East Partners. And for the last 25 years, I have been involved in a very troubled region of the planet called the Middle East. Um, There isn't practically a day that goes by that something monumental isn't happening in that area of the world. And yet, today, we will find that it is also the epicenter of an amazing move of God that is underway that is nothing short of miraculous. Unfortunately, very few people know about it, but I'm honored to be working in that region and to see it firsthand. So um, in a few minutes, I want to show you just a brief video because a picture paints a 1,000 words. Um, The refugee crisis is considered the greatest humanitarian challenge of our day. And uh, political leaders, the EU are scrambling trying to figure out how to make sense out of what is going on. But in the midst of it all, there is something sovereign that God is doing, and that is that we are seeing today that the gospel is reaching Muslim people for the first time, and they are coming to the Lord in large numbers. So let me give you an example. Iran, let's look at the nation of Iran. It's been in the news lately. It's a nation of about 80, 84 million people. It's run by a Shiite Muslim theocracy. So basically, it's run by clerics who are trying to enforce the uh, Shiite faith on all its citizens. But many of the people are, don't, want that, um, don't want that oppression. So I- Iranians are actually abandoning the Shiite faith and coming to Christ in large numbers. Now, you have to understand that in Iran, the laws of apostasy say that if you convert to another faith, whatever faith it is, you, if you're a man, you will be punished by death, and if you're a woman, a lifetime imprisonment. That is not stopping the Iranian people from coming to the Lord. And in fact, many of the women who are in prison are actually doing uh, healing conferences and winning people to the Lord inside the prison system. And even the prison guards are coming to the Lord as these believers who are being persecuted and, and imprisoned are actually sharing their faith within the prison system. Iran today is the, has the fastest growing church in the entire world in spite of all, that, all, all the persecution and all the, um, the cruelty and the brutality of that regime. We don't know how long it's going to last. There may come a day when that regime will fall. But right now, it is an amazing time of harvest. So the Iranian people, once you come to the Lord, you can't go to a church. So you have to find another way to build your faith. And so sometimes they will meet in little homes. So there's thousands and thousands of little homes, of home groups all over Iran, where people are coming and learning about the Lord in the privacy of a home. Once they are discovered, then they are confiscated, um, they're imprisoned, they're beaten, uh, and we see that happening, and some people have been martyred as well. But that doesn't stop them. I'll give you an example of the spiritual hunger that is in the hearts of these people. There was um, One of the ways that people can um, learn about their faith is in Iran, because you can't go to church, is through the internet. So there's these internet churches where people use the internet to have church. And so one Muslim man came to faith through the internet. And he wrote to the gentleman who was the pastor and said, I need a Bible, would you please help me get a Bible. Well, you can't just go and buy a Bible in Iran. You have to find a very secret way to deliver it because if you're found and caught, you could be killed. So the man who the pastor had got on a bus, traveled two hours on a dusty road to meet his, this man to give him a New Testament in the Persian language. And when he got off the bus, the man was waiting for him and he had six other people with him. And he said, Who are they? He said, Oh, I just led them to the Lord, and we're all ready to take the the, the Bible the New Testament and study it together. That is the, the spiritual hunger that you see among these people. The other thing about Iranians is every year about two and a half thousand Iranians go into Turkey because Turkey and Iran have a good relationship and so they allow them to live in Turkey for three months. So many Iranians are Just go on vacation into Turkey, and because there are many Iranian believers in Turkey, they re- go out into the shopping malls and they show them. Th- they connect with them, and then they show them the, um, give them a New Testament, and many, many, many Iranians are coming to the Lord. Now we have 50 churches, Iranian churches in Turkey, just from these people who have just come out of Iran. And so when an Iranian becomes a believer and wants to be baptized, like what we, did, what we saw today, you can't do that in Iran. So they have to go outside. And so um, many Iranian believers are now baptized in Turkey. So I would like us to just take a moment and see a video that shows what that looks like, because a, a picture paints a 1,000 words. You're going to see the spiritual hunger that these people have. These are all Muslim people who've come to faith One the things you'll notice is that, um, that how young these people are, that over 50 percent of Iranians are under the age of 30. So they are young people, and God is doing an amazing work. Um, I would be happy to talk with you after the service. Uh, but I do have a text that I have to address this morning, and I want to uh, go to that now. But um, just know that we do lead vision trips to the region, um, both vision and mission trips, and uh, it's just a tremendous opportunity to meet these people firsthand and encourage them. Some of the people who were baptizing in the in the uh, baptizing others had already been in prison for four or five years. So I know a lot of those people, and it's just amazing, these stories. So God is doing amazing things. So this morning, um, I've been asked to speak on the text of 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, which is on God's admonition for wives and husbands. And uh, we just had Valentine's Day. <laughs> so I'm sure everybody has love in the air, and it's a very romantic time. Um <laughs> So it's a great time to address this subject. Uh, But when we consider that half of the marriages in this country end in divorce and fail, I think we need to have a hard look at why. And that's what I want to address today. Um, When couples marry, they don't plan on their marriage failing, but many do. And we have to ask the question, why? And I think that hopefully by the end of our time this morning, that you will gain something of value that you can revisit over your lifetime to help you so that you don't become part of that statistic. Nobody plans for their marriage to fail, and you don't want to be one of those statistics. But we have to be wise, and we have to understand the reasons why those marriages fail. So that's what I want to address this morning. And for those of you who are single, you don't have to go home <laughs> because I'm going to be sharing things that you can apply with relationships, but also you never know when you will run into the love of your life. And and this will be helpful as well. I think as a generation, we have demonstrated that marriage is not a a viable institution. And if, if anyone is ever going to disprove that, it's got to be the church. We have to be able to model in society the type of relationship that shows that marriages not only work, but they are wonderful, a wonderful thing, and that people need to want what we have. Let me share with you a little bit about myself. I'm a recent widow. I was married for 29 years, to the love of my life and my best friend. And Steve and I were such an inspiration to a lot of people who said that you have the best wedding, the marriage that we've ever seen. And I wanna share, what I'm gonna share with you this morning is four keys that helped us to be the people we were supposed to be. And if you saw my, my husband and I, we were very different. He was six foot two, and I'm five foot one. (laughs) Um, He was born and raised in Seattle. He was in the business world. I was in the ministry world. We had a very different, uh, we were very different, but we found how to be a team and how to make it work. And I want to inspire you today to believe that God has answers for his people, and we do not have to be part of the statistic of failed marriages. So having said that, I would like for us to pray now and ask for the Lord's blessing as we read the text in First Peter. Father, we thank you that you're the author and finisher of our faith, that we live in a world where there is so much confusion, so many voices, so many distractions. But you call us, Lord, to rest. You call us to live a life that... Uh, it draws from the well of salvation and from the, the joy of the Lord. As we open your word now, we ask, Lord, that you will m- multiply it and bless it and cause it, Lord, to become life to our hearts and instruct us in the way we should live our lives so that you can be glorified in our lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read uh, from 1 Peter 3, which is the text I was given. Um, And I'm going to use the Passion Translation, because that's one of my favorites. And it's a love letter. It's a beautiful translation. Um, So let's just read, uh, I'll read uh, uh, 1 Peter 3, the first seven verses. And now let me speak to the wives. Be devoted to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word of God, your kind conduct may win them over without you saying a thing. For when they observe your pure, godly life before God, it will impact them deeply. Let your true beauty come from your own inner personality, not a focus on the external. For lasting beauty comes from a gentle and peaceful spirit, which is precious in God's sight and, it, and is much more important than the outward adornment of elaborate hair, jewelry, and fine clothes. I don't think the scriptures are saying that forget the way you look. It's just saying don't make it a, a major focus. Holy women of, of long ago who had set their hopes in God beautified themselves with lives lived in deference to their own husband's authority, For example, our mother Sarah devoted herself to her husband, Abraham, and even called him master, and you have become her daughters when you do what is right without fear and intimidation. Husbands, you, in turn, must treat your wives with tenderness, viewing them as feminine partners who deserve to be honored for they are co-heirs with you of the divine grace of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. So in the text today, the epistles, 1 Peter, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and James were written to believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor um, as, uh, in, because of persecution, And back then, they called them exiles. Today, we call them refugees. Persecution is a refiner's fire that unfolds the beauty and the brilliance of a true faith, authentic faith. And when we suffer for our faith, we honor God. He promises to never leave us and and to richly reward us for our faith. Many of the people that you saw in that video have been in prison, and they have suffered for their faith. Um, but they continued to go on strong and continue to serve the Lord. So the exiles addressed in today's text were in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And it's interesting that in the video we just saw, we saw exiles in modern-day Turkey. Turkey today has over 5 million refugees from different parts of the Middle East, uh, Iranians, Afghans, Syrians. Um, Iraqis and even um, Pakistanis. So Turkey continues to be a haven for refugees who are coming from from other parts of the world scattered because of persecution. So the Apostle Peter here uses the metaphor of family to address and remind the reader that as believers in Jesus, we are now part of God's family. So he starts off by helping people uh, understand that as believers, we are part of a family. And this analogy is important because as being members of this new family, there's a new protocol of how you're supposed to behave, how you're supposed to live your life. And his audience in 1 Peter are addressed to new believers. They are baby Christians um, they, they, Many of them are Jews who've become Christian, but um, they are young in the faith and they need instruction. And so that's what the, uh, 1 Peter 3 is about. It's instructing young believers how to live the Christian life in the context of marriage. So um, part of the problem was that many uh, of these people had to overcome some negative thinking and attitudes about marriage. Um, there was a, a Jewish prayer that says uh, that if a man, um, man prays and says, oh, I thank God that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And so these were some negative attitudes that needed to be addressed. Husbands in, in that era never spoke to their wives in public. They would, the women had very narrow roles and they had to stay within the confines of those roles. And so women back then were not treated with great honor or respect. And one of the things we'll see is that this text addresses the, the word honor. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But Jesus countered the, 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 um, the tradition that existed in his day towards women and he frequently spoke to them in public, spoke to women in public, the Samaritan woman, the woman with the issue of blood. He was always addressing women in public. And that was countercultural because back then, men never did that. So Jesus actually presented a different way. He elevated women and honored women by respectfully addressing them in public. He used women and referred to them in many of his parables. And in the early um, disciples, there were many women who were early disciples who also uh, helped to spread the gospel and also to fund many, um, many much of the work. Now, our text today exhorts wives to honor their husbands. But note here that it says that even if the husband is an unbeliever, your kind conduct will win him over without a word and without fear and intimidation. Domestic abuse has been in the in the human experience, in the human race, from the beginning of time. Um, even today, many Muslim... Fathers will say to their sons, now when you get married, you need to beat your wife three times a week to remind her that you're the boss. Um, it still happens today. So when, when you saw the people that, that were being baptized in this video, these are Muslim people. They've had to unlearn how, a lot of things that are traditions for their culture. They've had to learn that no, you don't beat your wife. As, as a Christian husband, you don't beat your wife. Um, and yet, you know, we have this problem in this country. I, I have a nephew who happens to be a police officer and he, in the city of Seattle, and I asked him one day, I said, Russell, what types of uh, things are you called on often? And he said, domestic abuse is the number one thing that he, he has to deal with. So this continues even today. Now, in our text, the apostle Peter admonishes wives to honor and respect their husbands. Um, So how do you do that? When we understand the values of God's kingdom and we apply them to our life, what happens is it changes the atmosphere of the home. So there is, when we have a different way of looking at our lives, it changes our home life. It changes the way... That life, uh, lives appear at home. So Peter admonishes wives, wives to establish a new order in their home, and he underscores that the hallmark of a Christian marriage is to honor. So how do we do that in a practical way? How do we establish a culture of honor in the home? Um, honor, recognize first of all. Let's define what honor is. Honor recognizes the worth in others. It's not because we've earned it, but because they are made in God's image, that another person is made in God's image. True biblical honor generates from a heart of unconditional love. Our commitment to honor should not waver, even in the worst of circumstances. Even when we disagree about something, we can still honor one another. so, honor does not look for fault in, in the other, but looks for ways to affirm and to love the other. Now, one of the things we found in the Muslim world is that oftentimes it's the women who come to faith in Christ first. And as they begin to apply these principles of honoring their husbands in the home, um, the atmosphere changes, and many times the husband likes the change that he sees in his wife. And so many men have come to faith through their wives and the changed behavior of the home through the wife. So there is something about atmospheric change that happens when I learn to honor, when I create that that culture of honor. So how do we create that? What I'm going to share with you today is very practical because marriage is, is very practical. And I want to share just four things, because I want you to remember them. If I shared 15, you'll probably forget half of them. So we're just going to keep it to four principles. But I think, And these are principles that come from my own experience in my own life. And even though I'm a widow now, I can honestly say I have lived what I'm going to teach you, and it works. So the first thing we want to do to honor someone, we must first see them through God's eyes. That's very important. You see, when, when, when you look at somebody, there are two versions of themselves. The first is their personality. It's the way that they appear in this life with their the education, their culture, their physical appearance, all their the gifts, their talents. And we are known on Earth through our personalities we are known in heaven through our persona. So there is a part of us that is also known in heaven. And that is that when God created each of us, he had something unique in mind. And so there is a part of us that is known in heaven by the design, it's called the divine design, that God has a design for each of us that's unique. So when I look at somebody, my spouse, and I need to see them through the eyes of of God, I have to see them not where they are today, but where God has planned for them to become. God is a present future. He is not past. God is always calling us to become more and more the person that we were meant to be. So when I met my husband, I got to see how God sees him. It was very different from the way he looked. But because I understood who he was in God's eyes, I was able to honor and respect him and love him, even in the most difficult of circumstances. See, we need that revelation we need to know each other the way God sees our loved one so that we can honor and respect them. Otherwise, we see all the faults, and then we get hung up on those things. So how do we do that? Well, firstly, I think it's good that we talk to each other about our gifts and callings, about the things that that are important to us. And I know when I met Steve... I had an apostolic call to the nations. I was called to travel the world. And whoever I married had to honor that because otherwise it wouldn't work. And Steve understood that about me. And he honored that. And he said, I want to stand with you and provide the shelter that you need so you're free to do the things that God has called you to do. It was amazing, but that that poor man, he must have driven me to the airport many times. Now we've got shuttles and it's not so bad, but he put up with my absence. Now, I tried to respect my role as a wife. I I made sure that I I cooked food for him so he had food when I was gone, Um, and I always tried to keep my trips short so that I wasn't gone a long time, maybe a week at the the most. Um, I did travel all over the world. and whenever I'd come home, Steve was always, he'd make a cup of coffee and we'd sit and we'd debrief and just talk about what uh, what I experienced, what I uh, learned, what happened. And so he supported me. He prayed for me. He loved me. Uh, he was proud of me. He always talked about me. And I did the same with him. And I I, I respected and loved him because I saw him through God's eyes. So, Take time with your loved ones to talk about your calling, your giftings. What are the things that uh, are important to you? You need to have those conversations and you need to learn to understand and respect it in each other. So if your spouse says, I really have a love for children, then honor that and say, okay, what can we do to help you have that, that work among children? What, what, how can we work together to see that happen? Uh, my husband was, I'm the extrovert, my husband was an introvert. Um, he became more extroverted after he married me, but, <laughs> and I became more introverted. But, um, but when I first got married, I noticed that Steve would come home from work, and he would go into a room and just sit quietly by himself. And I couldn't understand it, because I thought, well, you know, we've been working all day, we're, we're home now, let's all get together. And, and I just realized that as an introvert, he needed space to recharge. He was recharging. So instead of feeling left out, I realized, no, that's who he is. I respected that. And I was able to give him permission and space to take as much time as he needed to be on his own, to recharge as an introvert. And um, that changed over time. But but I, initially, it was, it, it's so easy to misunderstand and to think, well, you know, why aren't, they do, why aren't they spending more time with me? Well, if, an, if it's an introvert, you've got to give that introvert the space to have uh, time to themselves. Um, if you're upset with your spouse about something, don't let it... Um, try to understand them from God's point of view and say, God, how do you see my loved one? How, how do you see them? What is happening in their hearts that I can understand them better so that I don't take it personally? So the first thing then, principle, is to take time to see them through God's eyes. And if you ask God to show you how he sees your loved one, he, I guarantee he will show you. When you see that, it's amazing what it will do in your ability to honor and respect your loved one. Because you won't focus on the weaknesses. You won't focus on the mistakes. You won't focus on the things that you don't understand. You will be able to love them and honor them for who they are in God's eyes. The second principle uh, is that Scripture uses a covenant metaphor to describe marriage. It says, it, it compares it to our relationship with Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as as, as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for, the, for her. So this covenant is sacred. It's a sacred commitment. Now, because you've made a covenant with your loved one, and I'm going to be very brutally honest with you right now, it does not mean that in your lifetime you're not going to run into somebody that you have more in common than with your spouse. But that doesn't give you an excuse to say, well, then the grass is green over here. Let's. I wonder what my life would be like if I married this person instead of my, my spouse. In life, we're gonna meet all kinds of people. And some people you'll have more in common than your own spouse. But that doesn't give you an excuse to think that maybe you made a mistake. The answer is, if you've made a covenant relationship with your spouse, you honor that. And the enemy will try to bring people in your life, especially coworkers, especially people that you work with, that you have more in common maybe than, than your spouse. But that should never become a temptation that you act on. You have to realize that that's just, that's just what it is and just move on. Um, so, this is a very practical thing, but something that I think we need to honor. We've made a covenant with our spouse to be loyal to them, so we do not turn and, and um, consider divorce as an option, unless, of course, that's the only out. But when Steve and I got married, that's one of the first things we said to each other was um, that divorce is not an option. Whatever we face... Let's work it through. And you know what? If you decide that, you can do it. The only reason you choose divorce as an option is because you've chosen it as an option. Now, admittedly, there are some people who are so broken that in a marriage relationship, they just don't have um, the, the mechanism to be able to function correctly. And there are exceptions. And even in the scripture, it says there are exceptions. But I think if we enter a relationship thinking, well, if it doesn't work, I'll get a divorce. Let me tell you that the enemy will make sure that you have ample opportunity to, to face that. So it's important that we work on what we have. And I remember when Steve got sick, my, my husband passed away um, five years ago. He was a very athletic, very, ha- ha- um, very um, healthy man, but he got um, a very deadly brain tumor, called glioblastoma. And I don't know if you know about glioblastoma, but that is a, basically a, a deadly brain tumor that takes you out very quickly. I think uh, McCain also died of that. Um, and uh, in seven months, Steve was gone. Towards the end of his life, um, we, um, I, I, I was with him constantly trying to take care of him. And, and he said to me, said, Kathy, did it ever occur to you that I would put you through what i put you through. And I said, Steve, it's an honor to serve you. In sickness and in health, uh, we are there. We're in this together. And whatever the outcome is, we're in it together. And even after he went to be with the Lord, I was so adamant that I I sat there in the room, and I said, okay, now, Jesus, Stephen, Jesus, if you decide, Lord, that he should come back, I'm here for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I think once he had a glimpse of heaven, he didn't want to come back to the earth. Um, and I had to learn to accept that. And all I, I, and I've cherished the years that I've had with Steve as a gift. And that's the other thing I want to tell you is none of us know when our time will come to go. I mean, you know, we've had uh, Tracy went much quicker than we thought. Um, I never, Steve was 59 years old. He was not an old man. He was a very fit man and healthy man. But for some reason, he went. And, you know, it is what it is, and we have to accept that. So the other thing that I want to encourage you is cherish the times that you have with each other, because nobody knows. We think we're going to live to be old age. I hope we all do. But the fact is that we don't always make it. So make the most, develop happy memories, cherish the, the, the times you have together, because you never know how long you'll be with each other. So the third principle that I want to share with you is a big one. Um, and this one is, uh, takes a little while to work, but I think it's worth it mentioning. The French theologian Blaise Pascal said, there is a vacuum in the heart of every human being that only God can fill. Within the covenant relationship of marriage, there is a consecrated space in your deepest intimacy that belongs only to God. And I'm going to say it again. Within the covenant relationship with your spouse, there's a consecrated space in your deepest intimacy that belongs only to God. In Scripture, it's called the secret place. Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. It is the place in your heart that is number one. God God is number one. This is one of the secrets of a happy marriage. When God is number one in your heart, somehow you, you dismiss everybody, your spouse's limitations. You don't put expectations on them like you would otherwise. The deep, the, so, so, as long as we put God number one, we do not fall into an adulterous relationship. Most marriages today are adulterous in nature. And what does that mean? Adulterous means that an idol is when I look at a thing or a person, and, I, I, and besides God, and provide to provide my ultimate fulfillment. So, no matter how much my loved one loves me, because they're human, they're going to have limitations, and un- until I get to the place where I make God number one in my heart, I will always have a tendency to put expectations that are unrealistic on, in the lives of in the lives of others, and especially our spouses. So this is a very important one. Jesus says, "You have in uh, uh, in, in Revelation." He says, "You've forgotten your first love." Your first love is the most important thing. To be a, a loving spouse, you have to be in love with Jesus first. And this is something that doesn't happen overnight. You've got to work on it. It's work, because you, you've got to make sure. We live in a world of tremendous distractions. Um, idolatry in today's world is rampant. Your cell phone is a problem. <laughs> um, your internet... Um, uh, you know your career making money you know there 's so many things that that can become an idol in your life where they control you, where your identity is defined by these things, and when we do and we put that weight on that, then we 're actually operating in idolatry, and that 's when the apostle John says, "Protect yourself, John said, "Beloved, keep yourself from idols it 's important that we realize that we live in an idolatrous generation. Everything in society today is pushing us to be idolatrous, to put weight and importance in things outside ourselves, in other people, in other things. And when we do, we, are, we put ourselves in a place where we are, we, are, um, we are victimized by idolatry. So we have to create the time and space to be alone with God So that your relationship with God is the number one thing that you nurture, and then it spills into everything else. I remember once when I lived in LA, there was, um, I attended uh, church on the way, and Jack Hayford was there, and he got up one day and he said, I've decided I'm going to take four weeks away from the church. And he said, you know why? He said, nothing's wrong But he said, my relationship with God has gotten a little stale, and I just need to get away and just get that right. And I thought, now there's a wise man, and God blessed him, and his church just exploded. But he understood the importance of that primary relationship, Um, and I think we all have to do that. We have to take time and get away and, and spend time with God and make that our number one priority. Um, and that di- that is not an overnight thing. You have to work at it. Because you can start off well, and then your life has distractions. Your career uh, can take over. Your, um, you know, just all kinds of things can get in the way. Even cell phones. I think in the home that families need to have a time when you just take that cell phone and you turn the thing off. Because otherwise it can become an idol in the family. And it could interrupt Um, and become a distraction. So you're not really fully attending each other. You're not attending each other, but you're being distracted. So um, we have to look and take a hard look at our modern-day lifestyle and create an atmosphere of honor in our homes where we, we, we identify those distractions and don't make them part of our lives. So... So the truth is when God meets my deepest longing of my heart within himself, it frees me then to be able to live my life from a space of giving rather than getting. We enter marriage for the joy of giving, not for what we can get. The blessing of, our, uh, uh, of loving someone with the abundant love that we have for them. So it, there is an overflow that happens when we are in love with Jesus. That allows us to enjoy people and look at ways to bless them, rather than always looking for things for them to meet our needs. And the other thing that happens is we're not easily offended or disappointed. I I have a neighbor who um, is not a believer. They're not believers, um, and um, she's a nurse practitioner. Her husband is. Um, he works for the city. And one day she, she came and knocked on my door and she said, I'm fit to be tied. I have to talk. I'm ready to get a divorce. So I said, would you like a glass of wine? <laughs> <laughs> so we, she sat by the window and she started talking about how bad her husband was. I almost started to laugh because the reasons she gave were so minuscule. They were, so, they were hysterical actually. And I had to pinch myself, not to laugh. So I listened to her. So then I said, you know, Maritza, you are Latina. She's, um, she's got um, Puerto Rican blood. Her husband is German. I said, honey, <laughs> the guy loves you. He said, well, I think he's interested in somebody else. i says, oh, get out of here. I said, I said Paul would never, never turn to another woman. I said, that is just not true. You know, so anyway, little by little, I chipped at all her excuses, and in the end, she ended up laughing and realized that here she was ready to get it. She really was ready to get a divorce, and she came to tell me that she was she had come to the end of her road. She was fed up, and it wasn't going to work. And uh, by the time we were done, she went back to her husband, and she took a photo of the two of them hugging. And and then she sent it to me to say we made up we made up, but the thing is again the 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 issue that she had was it was more looking at trying her husband to be something that he wasn't. I said the guy he he's not expressive like a Latina like like a Latin guy, but I said. I bet you he writes beautiful cards. And she goes, oh, yes, he writes the most amazing uh, love notes and poems. And I said, well, there you go. I said, he's loving you with who he is. I said, don't try to make him into your image. I said, he is, you got to respect him for who he is. The guy was a great guy. And, and and they did love each other. But I think that you know, in any marriage, there's moments when we have those things. Anyway, it was really good that Maritza came to visit me because... <laughs> By the end of the day, she was fine. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And now number four, uh, the fourth principle. Very simple, but very profound. The key, the secret to a healthy marriage, is one where the couple live for a cause bigger than their own marriage. Simple as that. You have to, as a couple think of what can you do outside the home that can be a blessing to others. Because if you are only living for yourself, you'll become introspective and you'll be too ingrown. The purpose why God brings couples together is not only to propagate and have a family. Of course, he wants us to have a family. But he also wants us as a family to care about the community, to care about others outside. So think of something, and, and it 's not something that you, do, you discover right away. You may need time to think about it, but think about talk about what are things that are important to you. What are some ways? Oh now my ears I 'm plugging i 've been <laughs> plugged up up here. it 's just been weird. <laughs> <coughs> um, my husband um, and I uh, we were in our 30s when we got married. And so we understood what the single life was like. So when we got married, we made a, a home a safe place for our single friends. And they could come over and spend time and visit with us. And uh, we made them feel really loved and appreciated and safe. And like on Valentine's Day, sometimes we'd invite single friends and have them over. So we just we did things like that. Of course, um, the other thing, of course, was the work that I did internationally. And he was very supportive of that as well. And that was a cause that we both lived for. And even though he didn't travel like I did, he was there to to stand with me, to support me, to pray for me, and to um, help me out any way he could. So I think that is a key. And if you look at couples that seem to be doing well, you'll notice that a lot of times they do have a, a cause outside themselves. Um, you know, Bill Gates, of course, he's a philanthropist, but, you know, there are many wealthy people who don't necessarily de- develop foundations and, and give back to the community. But Bill Gates has, and, and his marriage is a good marriage um, because they realized that what they have was, was to give back. And every family needs to look for ways to give back to the community. It may be something simple like volunteering, um, you know, even like the the fund that you want to raise money for here is a good one um, to give money to help people who may need counseling. Uh, but just think of causes that you want to support and you want to be part of. Um, praying for a, a missionary is a good one. You know, it's hard being a missionary. It's hard living in another culture and being away from home. And for the work that we do. Without prayer, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. So, that is also an important thing. So, just ask yourself. So, what I'm creating in you right now is giving you questions that you can, a dialogue that you can begin to have with your spouse or your loved ones. And if you're newly married, if you're not married yet, these are good things to keep in mind anyway. If you start this dialogue, what's going to happen is you're going to create a culture of honor. You're going to get to know your loved one. Instead of being so busy back and forth going to work and forgetting that there is a life that you share together, um, it will allow you to create an atmosphere of love and and, uh, and honor that w- not only will be for you, but for anyone else who comes to your home or anyone who watches you uh, and sees uh, the, how you model it. So in conclusion, um, there are, these, these are the four principles that I've just laid out. The first is to create a culture of honor by seeing your loved one through the eyes of God, and God can help you to see them as he sees them. The second is to honor your marriage covenant and don't look at divorce as an option if you can avoid it. Thirdly, to make Jesus your first love and love your spouse in that order. So you love Jesus as your first love, and you love your spouse afterwards. And fourthly, to make a, a cause that's, find a cause that's bigger than your marriage that you can commit to. So those are the four things that I want to leave with you this morning. And when, when we follow the values of this dominant culture, we become victimized by the by the results. So, when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our homes, then He gives us wisdom and grace to be able to live our life in the rhythm and design that God has for each of us. He helps us to navigate the ups and downs of life. There'll be sickness, there'll be loss of jobs sometime. Steve and I both had times when we were not um, employed and we were there for each other, to help each other. We not only reap the benefit, so we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us through the ups and downs. And when we decide to build a healthy marriage, we not only reap the benefits for ourselves, but we become a role model for others. So, our foundation is to create a culture of honor, our commitment is to a sacred covenant, our purpose is to build a family in an atmosphere of unconditional love. Our power is prayer. Our path is faith. And our reward is Jesus. Because in the end, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. So let me just close in prayer. Father, we thank you that um, in this room there are families and there are emerging families and there are people who are single who will one day be married. But I just pray a blessing over every family that's in this room, every couple that's in this room. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you will inspire them with your word to create a culture of honor in their homes so that not only are they able to enjoy um, their families, but they can be an inspiration to others. We just ask that you will bless um, Sedaris Church as a family, as a church family, to also continue to grow and in influence and in, um, in the ability to serve our community. In Jesus' name, amen.